Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, good morning. For those of you that are used to a different routine, we're not forgetting the offering. We're not forgetting announcements. We're going to try and experiment for the next six weeks of doing it at a different time. So today... We're going to jump right into the message, and uh, we've uh, been in this, we're on the second to the last of a se- in our series, uh, Coached by the Greats, and today we get to uh, dive right into the life of one of the most famous Old Testament heroes that every kid likes. His name is Samson, and every kid likes him because Samson is a guy who likes style points. He, uh, he's the guy who likes to tear off doors, 400-pound gates off of cities, carrying them up to the top of the hill and uh, flaunt his victory over his enemies. And I know that all of us have grown up to be good sports and sportsmen, but uh, truth be told, when our team is trying to get into the national championship tournament, we like a good resounding whooping. And uh, we give up some of the good sports, and we like a style victory, uh, don't we, in that, in that stuff. Samson's story is actually found in the book of Judges. It's over, it's over the course of uh, four chapters. And he's also mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of the greats of the faith. And the story is basically, in, in, in spite of the kindness of God and the pursuit of God of the Israelites, uh, they had, in this pattern in Judges, of being repeatedly unfaithful. They'd come back to him, uh, God would deliver them, then they'd be unfaithful, and the consequences of their sin would bring pain and disorientation and, and oppression, and then God, they would, God would hear the prayers of the people and raise up another leader and deliver them again. And the prayers of the people have been he- heard because God had given them over to oppression by the Philistines for 40 years, and up rises Samson. Now, the Philistines, if you understand who they were, they were uh, pagan-worshipping people who had occupied what is now the Gaza Strip in Israel for centuries. They were one of the most advanced military people of the day. Uh, they were there before Israel came out of Egypt for the Exodus, and they were strong and a, pr- a prolific force in that area all the way up until King David weakened them. And then a couple centuries after that, the Assyrians uh, came and, and, and took them out, and they ceased to be a distinct people. But actually, the name uh, Palestine originates from the Philistine peoples. Uh, it's been around that long. And so the people of Israel have been praying to God because of the oppression of the Philistines. And God hears them and raises up Samson. And we're going to summarize quickly these four chapters of the story in case you're not familiar with all the nuances of it. Uh, Angel of the Lord appears to this couple who has not been able to have children and says, you're going to have a child and he's going to be a Nazarite. And it's really important that we understand this idea of Nazarite. Nazarite uh, was a person in the Old Testament who was specially set aside in a special way to serve God. And as a tangible part of the faith expression of their being set apart, they agreed to not drink, they agreed to not touch dead animals or anything unclean, and they agreed to not cut their hair as a physical, tangible, visible expression of them being set apart to God's service. Don't know why those things were all picked, but that's just what it was. And God tends to ask us a lot of times in life to do tangible, physical expressions to demonstrate our faith. And so that's what that is. Samson is born. And the cha- chapter 13, the first chapter of his story, ends with these words. It says, He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And then in chapter 14, we get to see Samson wanting to get married, and we get to see some of his weaknesses coming out in the story. Samson is 
walking around one day by the Philistine town of Timnah, a few miles away from where he lives, and he sees this hot babe. I mean, that's just basically what the text says in slang. He sees this hot babe, and he comes back to his mom and dad, and he says, I want her, get her to be my wife. And now that's not that uncommon in that day because the dads always arranged the marriage. But what's uncommon in this story is how demanding Samson is. He's just constantly going, I want her, get her. And his mom and dad try to talk him out of it. They try to say, well, son, she's not at all of the same faith. She doesn't hold the same values, the same moral values, the same cultural values. She's so different. Why would you want to marry her? You shouldn't do that. And it's not a racist or sectarian comment. It's just a simple recognition that marriage is hard enough without marrying somebody who is so drastically different that you're going to have constant conflict over the things we all assume to be the things we would do. And Samson just continues to say, get her for me. I want her, get her for me, and he prevails. So the story goes on, and we see the family traveling to Timnah for the father to arrange the marriage. On the way there, Samson decides to take a detour away from the whole crowd and walk by himself for a while, and he runs into a lion. And it's this amazing story that talks about the Spirit of the Lord, it says, came powerfully upon him, and he tore the lion limb by limb with his bare hands and defeated the lion, killed him. He comes back, and they go there. The marriage gets arranged. They go home, and then it says sometime later when they were headed back for the actual wedding, Samson again takes off and goes out to see this lion he had torn apart. And by then, the maggots have eaten it, and the birds have eaten it. It's just a carcass, and the only thing left is just a little bit of yuck, and there's actually a bee's nest in it and some honey. And he dips his hand in and eats the honey. Isn't that gross? And here's the gross part. He actually dips some of the honey out and he takes it to his parents and gives it to his parents and doesn't tell them where it came from. Now, doesn't that sound like some of your kids? Except for the fact that Samson is a young man now. You'd think he'd grow up and know better by this time. Isn't it interesting as well that this is actually a violation of his Nazarite vow? That he goes on. The story goes on and he gets to the, his future father-in-law's home. And the Philistine tradition for a wedding was that there would be a seven-day feast. And the word feast there actually includes very explicitly the meaning, this was a kegger. It was a seven-day kegger. Samson, again, violating one of his Nazarite vows and being a part of this. And part of their tradition as well at that point was that uh, <clears throat> the Philistines... Uh, the, the, the father of the bride would select the groomsmen. And they selected basically 30 of them. They called them companions for Samson to celebrate with him that week. That's a really big, big wedding party, don't you think? 30 people. Samson, he's just this competitive guy. He sits down with these 30 guys and he, he, he decides he's going to get them. So he says, I'm going to tell you a riddle. And if you can tell me the answer to the riddle before the seven days of our celebration is over, then I will get each of you a set of clothes. But if you can't tell me, then all of you have to give me a set of clothes. He wants 30 different sets of clothes from these guys. And that is a really expensive proposition. Even one set of clothes in that day is a really expensive bet, expensive proposition to make. Well... He tells him this riddle. He says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Now, that's about the lion he killed, but nobody else knows that. Nobody even knows he's the one who killed it. So there's no way to guess this riddle, and the guys can't figure it out. So they go immediately to his bride-to-be and say, unless you can trick Samson into telling you what the riddle means before the seven days are up, and you tell us so we can be right, and he has to pay us, we will kill you and your father. Really 
nice bridal party. You think you had it rough with some of your in-laws, right? I mean, this is just the epitome of a really bad day. So Samson's wife does what? She goes to him with the kind of best kind of persuasion possible, very real motivated. She threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't even told me the answer. And he wouldn't tell her, and she kept crying every day for good reason, trying to get him to tell. Just before the end of the seventh day, he finally breaks down, and he tells. And she goes to the Philistines and says, it's a lie. And they come back and guess it. And Samson's mad because he's got to get 30 sets of clothes for him. And Samson says this. This is what everybody else wants to hear. If you had not plowed with my heifer, that's, just, just, that's what you want to be called, right, women? If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle, he says to those Philistines. And again, interestingly enough, the text goes on. And it says, then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon, one of the big Philistine cities, and struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. In other words, what happened, get this, Samson is so angry, he just goes home. He leaves his wife, his father-in-law. He doesn't. He just goes home. He's so angry. And he didn't realize the Philistines had a tradition that if you didn't consummate the marriage after seven days, that they would give the bride to the best man. So he doesn't know that. So the next chapter starts off with Samson gathering up a goat as a gift, and he's going to go back finally. He's cooled down. He's going to go back as a gift and try to get back in good graces with his wife and his father-in-law. And he goes and he finds out that she's been given to the best man in marriage, and he is angry. The anger is even worse. And think about the intensity and the intentionality of this. He goes out and takes the time to catch 300 foxes. He ties them together, their tails together in twos and ties a torch to them. And this is harvest season when everything's dry. He sets the torches on fire and watches them run through the grain fields and the vineyards and the orchards of the Philistines, destroying them. And the Philistines, I mean, it's harvest time. What are you going to do? You're going to be really angry. And they find out what happened and why it happened. And they go and burn his wife, the one that was supposed to have been his wife and father-in-law to death. And Samson gets even more angry, so he goes out and attacks the Philistines again and slaughters a whole bunch of them. This is a great bedtime story, isn't it? This is just the kind of story. I mean, little kids love the story of Samson. But isn't it, the truth of it is something different, isn't it? This is just really a major lesson in the cycle of revenge, and it's actually kind of a hard one to see the faith lesson in it and why Samson is considered a great of the faith. Samson leaves this encounter of killing a bunch of them, and he goes and he hides in a slave because I think he kind of realizes he probably made him really angry, and he did because the whole Philistine army comes out, thousands and thousands of them, to go to fight against Israel. And they go to Israel, and they say, unless you go get Samson and you bring him back and deliver him into our hands, we're going to slaughter you. And what do the Israelites do? They go find him. They go find Samson, and they take 3,000 men to find him. 3,000 men going to find one guy. That, that's kind of amazing in and of itself. And Samson meets the Israelites and he says, I'll let you take me to the Philistines as long as you promise not to kill me before we get there. 
And while they're approaching to the Philistines, the Philistines are mad and they're rushing, it says, towards Samson to gather, to, to grab him. And the text says the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him and he tore the ropes that were binding him like they were chaff. And he grabs the nearest thing he can find, which is the jawbone of a donkey. And he kills a thousand of the Philistines by himself with the jawbone of a donkey. And the text goes on to say, Samson led Israel for 20 years. Chapter 16, the last chapter of Samson's story, shows us that his flaws pop up again. Samson is just hopeless at making good choices in women. We see him in chapter 16, taking a trip to Gaza. Now, why on earth would the hated leader of the Israelites go down to Gaza, one of the Philistine strongholds, by himself in the first place. But he not only goes there, he goes into the middle of the city and he sees a prostitute and he says, I want to sleep with her. So he goes in to sleep with her and the Philistines go, this is our chance. He's going to be exhausted and we're going to wait till the morning. He's going to come out. We're going to kill him. But Samson gets up in the middle of the night and sneaks by him and goes to the door and that's when the whole wooden gate thing comes up. He tears the door off of the wall by its hinges and carries this estimated 400-pound door up to the top of the hill, flaunting his power. He loves style points. I mean, the reality of his personality and who he is, Samson is an adrenaline junkie. He's either got to he's got either got to get the high of conquering a beautiful woman or he's got to do something really really crazy going down in the middle of his enemies or it also tells a story of him medica- medicating that need for that thrill by alcohol and partying. Sometime later in chapter 16 it talks about him meeting Delilah and we've all probably heard about Delilah and uh, the rulers go and offer Delilah, $90,000 in today's money for her to find out the secret to his strength so they can capture him and be rid of their enemy. And she's pestering him and he tells her lies each time. He tells her a lie that's getting just a little bit closer to the truth but still not there. And she gets to the point of pestering where she says, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me. And with such nagging, the text goes on, she prodded him day after day after day until he was sick to death of it. And he tells her the secret, his hair. And probably after he's drunk one evening and sleeping, she cuts his hair and takes it off. And it really isn't about the hair. A lot of people think it's really about the hair tied to his strength. But it's about his vow. It's about his faith. It's about removing the last vestige of the tangible expression of his faith and trust in God. And the text actually says about that instance, it doesn't focus on his hair. hair. It focuses on this in verse 20. It says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. And he's captured His eyes are gouged out and the consequences are he's now imprisoned and chained to this pole and he's doing the work of an ox grinding grain in a prison for his enemy and you can't see. And it's just this horrible picture. A while later, the rulers of the Philistines gather a party at the nearby stadium because they want to celebrate. Now this guy who's been a thorn in our flesh for years is now captured and he's weak and we can triumph over, we've triumphed over him and all the rulers gather in the stadium and 3,000 people gather up on the second mezzanine level looking down on, the, on, on them parading Samson through the theater, the stadium, mocking him. And it says, then Samson prayed to the Lord, sovereign Lord, remember me. 
Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get the revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all of his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And he killed many more in his death than he did during his life of his enemies. And while little kids love this story, I know I did because of the way the storybooks tell it and all the heroic feats, the reality of this story is really quite different, isn't it? And this story is actually one of the reasons why so many people struggle with the idea of how can the Bible be reliable? How can the Bible say someone like this who is such a womanizer, such a revenge-oriented, bloodlust-oriented person be a great of the faith? I mean, what's up with that? How can that be? And it causes many people to distrust the Bible. But the assumption behind that struggle is actually the very core of what we've been trying to get past in this series. And it's an assumption about what faith is. It's an assumption that says faith is about my ability to believe something and persevere long enough and my ability to learn to be focused and disciplined enough to achieve this long-held promise, this long-held thing that I'm called to do. And it's all, we believe that faith is all about us. But Samson's story is one of the most vivid portrayals of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's the story of how weak, shattered, sinful humanity by faith in the promise of God can accomplish God's good purposes. Now, certainly there's a number of aspects about about Samson's life that we don't want to be a part of. I mean, we love his faith, the fact that he believed in the promise and he, he, he trusted and responded to the stirring of the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. We want to be like that. We want to be heroic. We want to be champions. But we don't want the quality of life he had, do we? So let's look at Samson's life from that perspective because there's some lessons to learn about faith. We're going to look at two pitfalls of faith that I think we all struggle with. And I think we're, and then we're going to look at the key to his faith and the power that we see in overcoming failure. And we're going to look at how Samson points us to Jesus. So the two pitfalls of faith first that Samson's story reveals. Um, a few years ago, Jim Collins and Jerry Perez wrote a book called Built to Last. And in it, they coined a term, BHAG. Big, hairy, audacious goals, BHAGs. And they talked about the fact that every successful visionary leader, every successful visionary person needed to be driven by a BHAG in their life. And I think the reality is that God's call on all of our lives, on your life, on my life, by its very nature, is a BHAG. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal. The fact that he calls us to be able to make a change and make a difference in life for him is really quite amazing in the midst of our own understanding of our weakness. In Samson's story, we see two BHAGs at work, and I think they reveal the pitfalls for us. The first is a universal one. It's the call that God has on your life, on my life, on every single human's life. His call on us is begins at the promise of God to Israel to bless us, so that we would be a blessing and so that every nation, every people, on, every person on earth would become a follower of him. 
That's the universal call that God has on every single one of our lives. Not just me, not just a pastor. It's on your life. It's on all of our lives. The second BHAG is Samuel's specific call. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be miraculously born to a couple who was barren, who had been visited by an angel, and then being told from the very moment of your birth on that your purpose was to deliver the people of Israel from oppression? To grow up thinking that that's the call on your life. And to realize that that meant overcoming one of the most advanced armies in the entire history of humanity up to that point. Either by yourself or with a bunch of Israelite farmers and shepherds who were under-equipped and under-prepared to do that. See, the distance between the dream, the call that God had on Samson's life, and the reality seemed enormous. It was Way too big of a gap in many ways to respond to. And even when Samson believes in that, he starts to get some initial victories. Uh, you would think that other people would have gotten on board with him. I mean, you know, that's kind of the change process we learn in business. So you get a few small victories and everybody gets on board. And, but that didn't happen in Samson's case. And it's re- really interesting. A lot of biblical scholars look at this story and they say this was the most dangerous point in the history of Israel in all of its recorded history in the Bible. Because if you look at the people that rose up in leadership the previous times before Samson to deliver them from oppression when they came back to God, every single time the people of Israel all got behind him. You look at Deborah and Barak, you look at, you look at Jephthah and you see even Gideon and all the people of Israel responded. Even in Gideon's story, you see everybody coming down and then God says everybody who's afraid can go home and over half the people leave. And then God eventually whittles the band of people who are going to fight down to 300 people to go against thousands It's a really amazing story of how God sets up this miraculous encounter to create a victory. But even after that victory is commenced through that miraculous encounter, all of Israel comes out of the hills to join in and mop up the victory. But you don't see that happening with Samson. He's there, he's alone, and nobody is following. And it's it's a danger of a big, hairy, audacious goal that Israel's struggling with. They're struggling with the whole thing of the call to be a blessing, to be blessed and be a blessing to the whole earth. And they're gradually succumbing to the desire just to get along, just to assimilate. It's actually interesting. History history verifies this outside of the biblical text as well, that the Philistines were different than a lot of the other people who had conquered Israel. A lot of the other people who conquered Israel came in and they were very oppressive. And even though the Philistines had the most advanced army of the day, the most advanced weapons of the day and were so feared, when they actually conquered a people, they actually tried to get them to assimilate with them. So they treated them much nicer than other people. Their whole goal was to get rid of the culture they conquered and make them become a part of them. And we actually see that happening for Israel in this story, even in the story of Samson itself. Samson thinks nothing about going and marrying a Philistine. There's no thought in his mind. Why would that be wrong? He's already beginning, beginning to assimilate himself. And, it, and when we see the Philistines coming to the Israelites, demanding them later to turn over Samson to them, here's the response. It says, don't you realize the Israelites are talking to Samson? Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? You see, there's a sense of identification going on between the Israelites and their rulers. They are our rulers. What have you done to us, he's saying. There isn't any fight left in them. It's been a long time since anything looked like blessing or influence to them. 
or changing the world to them. And they're just going along to get along, which is really the first pitfall that the Israelites revealed to us. When we face these big, hairy, audacious goals that things seem so far beyond us, we get caught up in what I call the disses, the discouragement, the disillusionment. We start to feel like it's so far away that we become disconnected from this sense of calling, this sense of purpose for us. And we think, ah, oh, that's Samson's call. That's not mine. It's, it's not a part of me. That's, that's my forefathers. God may have spoken that to the people before, but that, that's not me. And, I, and or, or just things are coming so slow and we just, we just can't keep going. And so instead of be, being the culture changers that God asks us to be, we become increasingly part of the culture. Isn't it true? The temptation of the culture we live in, the power of the culture we live in is tremendous. It's profound. And it's so easy, instead of living in the promise of being the ones who influence culture and change culture, the ones who change people's lives because we're blessed and we become a blessing and we become winsome with people and live like Jesus and love like Jesus, it's easy to start saying, you don't understand in order to be part of this culture, in order to not be different, in order to not be castigated as weird or a religious fanatic, we have to accept certain practices and we have to behave in certain ways, right? Or we don't understand that we may say that we don't understand, you don't understand that things are just this way and we need to fit in to be culturally relevant and we just need to go along to get along. There is so much pressure to conform to the culture and not to faith in Jesus And Jesus calls us to be salt and light. He calls us to be culture changers. The second BHAG pitfall is actually found directly in Samson's life. And it's found in his character, actually his lack of character. You see, Samson was physically strong. He was also strong in believing this great big goal that he was going to be the deliverer. But yet his character in that is weak. And he falls prey to what I think could be described as a sense of entitlement. I deserve this or lust. And we could define lust as I want it and I want it now, right? I mean, that's, isn't that what we hear in him when he says, I want that girl, go get her for me. I like that girl, get her for my wife. And isn't that behind his repeated bad choices in women and his adrenaline junkie trips into enemy territory for no good reason? And the amazing thing, again, is the gospel. God still accomplishes the core of Samson's call through his life. But clearly, clearly his life could have been so much richer and so much better. What's going on in Samson's behavior that causes him to struggle? I think it's... I think it comes down to this whole BHAG thing. It's, 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 it's really easy when you have a sense of a huge... Uh, call a huge sense of destiny in your life, when you have a, a huge dream for your business or a huge dream for your family, especially when you start to succeed and begin to see some of that take place, it's so easy to fall into living with the sense of entitlement, the sense of I've paid my dues and I deserve this pleasure. I have learned enough that I am worthy now to be listened to And I am better than other people and I should be getting the respect that I need. And I've, you know, I mean, I've seen it in my own life. 
in, in success that God's given in the past. One of the first churches I was involved with grew to be a top 2% church in terms of size in the U.S. And, and it, was, it was just so easy to become overconfident, to begin to listen less and to dictate our expertise more and to get caught up in the big vision that was going to happen and how we were so good and how we were going to do it and other people weren't. And it's just so easy to get caught up in that and then to also think that we deserve the reward that comes along with that. We deserve because we've paid the price and we've done it better than other people. And whether those rewards are monetary or whether there's some other sort of perks or respect, it, it could be anything. But And I've seen it in other people living in their success as well, this sense of calling and then this sense of beginning success in that calling tends to breed a trust in my own ability and a loss of recognition that I am only a servant of God in my business, in my family, in my sport, or in my, in my spiritual life, right? It breeds this sense of self-reliance. And when you or I fall into that pit, life becomes more for us about the dream, about achieving this BHAG, this big, hairy, audacious goal, than it does about following as a servant my master, Jesus. See, we even see this in the broad scope. You can just look at the very broad scope of American culture and see this entitlement, this, this lust in the U.S. economy, the just because I can, I should have it kind of an attitude. The Atlantic uh, Journal did an, an interesting article in December of 2012 on uh, the growth of income inequality in the U.S. And it pointed out the fact that non-supervisory worker production has increased by 254% since 1948, but real hourly compensation for that same set of workers has only grown by 113%. And then you combine that with the graph of the growth of the top 1% wage earners and how much their incomes have skyrocketed in comparison to other people. And let me, let me just stop us right there. This is a bailiwick that gets beat on a lot in the press today, and I'm not here today to make any kind of comment about pro-force, pro being pro-forced income redistribution. That's, I'm actually, frankly, not for forced re income re re redistribution because I don't think it goes to the issue because here's the issue. This is a heart check point, not an economy check point. And it's not even focused just on the 1%, even though we can talk about it and vividly portray it on a chart about the 1%, because the same heart problem that drives the 1% to be out of balance in this issue is the same heart problem that drives the rest of America to be too indebted, to go into debt too much, thinking, I deserve this. Because I can get it, I should have it. And I want this, and I want this now. This, you know, We often talk about, in politics, the entitlement mentality and trying to avoid that among the poor, but the reality is the entitlement mentality is all throughout American culture, and it will never be solved by, for, by focusing on just one class. We all struggle with this entitlement of, I deserve this, and I want this, and I need it now. And Samson illustrates for us how that affects everyone. This powerful, great person falls prey to this character defect of entitlement and lust in a way that spoils the quality of his life, even in the midst of achieving much of the vision of his life. See, an entitlement isn't just about money. And entitlement shows up in our relationships as well. Entitlement drives many of the divorces. 
Entitlement derives many of the affairs. Entitlement derives many of the relationship breakdown things that we have in life today because we think, I deserve to be happy. And so I should be able to be free of difficulty in this relationship so I can move on. I deserve my spouse to act in a certain way, and so we can choose to be free of that. The focus in entitlement becomes first and foremost on me and what I want now, and it takes us away from loving like Jesus loved, sacrificially initiating love, not even always expecting it in return. Instead of loving like Jesus, we become very self-centered. All too often, we, like Sam, Samson at the end of his life, look back, and we've actually probably experienced something worse than gouging out of our eyes. Our hearts have been gouged out because we look back and we see too many things in life where we regret that we didn't face this better, where we wish we could change. Too many pain moments in relationship. Faith acknowledges that we deserve nothing that all of, the, all of the good we receive, and there's much good that God wants to give us, comes from God. And we live from gratefulness, gladly dependent on God. And there's a side lesson in this too, a side lesson that I think we can learn as parents. And we don't have time to develop this fully, so I'm just going to go into it briefly. Samson, from a very early age, it's apparent in the story that he lived with a sense of entitlement from a very early age. The, the, he comes to his parents and says, I want her, get her for me. And his parents make this weekly kind of weak, no, this is really not going to be good for you. But he keeps demanding kind of like this terrible twos tantrum, even though he's an adult, and they cave in and they do what he wants. And here's, here's the struggle I know I've struggled with as a parent, and I'm sure all of us have. We all so desperately want success for our kids. We want our kids to be happy, happier maybe even than we were, so much that we do everything we can to remove every barrier possible to their success. And we end up being like Samson's parents. We refuse to allow our kids to deal with the disappointment, to deal with the anger, to sit in the anger, to maybe even sit in the depression that they need to sit in. And because we refuse to take them there, we fall prey to helping our kids learn a sense of entitlement, that they deserve to be happy all the time. They deserve their relationships to be easy. They deserve to not have conflict in their life. It's so, so easy for us to be like Samson's parents and create that sense of entitlement You see, faith's purpose is to lead us like Jesus, and the reality is that faithfulness Faithfulness is the anchor of the development of great faith. And unless we learn that, if we don't learn to help our kids stay engaged, even when they're bored, even when there's difficult conflict and drama in their relationships, if we don't help them stay engaged, we, by default in our parenting, help to create a sense of entitlement in them that they don't have to deal with difficult relationships and they don't have to not have fun. They can, they can, the, the boredom is a bad thing. And they don't have to face that. We could summarize our pitfalls today in the sense of entitlement, the sense of lust, the sense of wanting it now. And a lot of us, a lot of us want that so badly that it leads to the strong, strong competitive drivenness in us in our life and this anger and this insecurity that we have to cover. What we're really doing is covering the insecurity of our lives by trying to get things around us or or we respond to the big dreams of our life 
by getting to the point of hopelessness and disillusionment and disconnecting from it and saying, I'm just going to get along to go along. And we lose the dream. We lose the impact that God wants to give for our lives when we do that. He's called you. He's called us as a church to be hugely blessed by him and to, in turn, give that blessing to others freely and generously so that all in our community, starting with our friends, starting with our coworkers, starting with our family members, starting with the neighbors that we don't like, can learn to follow Jesus and love him too. Samson's life also depicts for us the key to longevity of impact in our faith. And it does so not through his good example, but through how we see him return to faith in the face of failure. You see, Samson's story is actually this marquee story of failure, isn't it? I mean, think about it. He goes from the heights of power and strength and popularity and getting everything he wants to the depths of being locked up and chained up and in this, in this prison doing the work of an ox. He goes from being admired and feared at the heights of power to being put on display and mocked by his enemies. It is the worst nightmare of embarrassment and humiliation and failure one could ever imagine in life. And yet in Samson's last moments, it's still tainted by some of his imperfection here, but you get to see in his last moments the nugget of life that really empowers our faith over the long term. And it's simply this. It's humble repentance. Now, repentance is different than remorse. All of us can feel remorse. All of us can feel regret. All of us can look back at the things we've done in the past and feel really bad about them and get focused on them. But but that's not repentance. I mean, all of us have sin and all of us have consequences in our life. And for Samson, that didn't come fast, did it? His steps to get to to the, the, the huge failure he's in didn't come fast. I love the way Craig Groeschel says it. He says that it was 50,000 steps that it took, little steps that Samson took to this huge failure because it was about 50,000 steps from his home to Gaza for him to this, get, get in this consequence. And repentance is different than remorse. Remorse allows us to stay focused on the past and just be sad and just be sorry. But repentance is more more than just being sorry. Repentance is turning away, taking steps, owning our regret, owning our sin, not making any more excuses, but then turning away from all those little steps we've been taken and turning actively back to God. It's not even just saying sorry. It's not just turning and apologizing. It's taking an active step to re-engage the promise of God for our life, to get back involved in the mission of God for our life. Look at, look at how Samson models this for us. He says, he prays in, in, cha- in verse uh, 28 of chapter 16, he says, Sovereign Lord. And do you hear what's different here already? He's not saying God or Lord, but he's saying sovereign Lord. He's acknowledging God's place, God's power, and he's humbly placing himself below that. He goes on and says, sovereign Lord, remember me. Remember me. He's speaking in relational tones there of a God who knows him and he knows, and he's further acknowledging where his power comes from, but he's also reminding God of the promise of God. that He's no longer demanding. He's no longer, he's no longer doing things out of competitiveness to prove his, his own strength. He's just saying, remember me. Remember the good purpose that you said my life was, was made for. Remember me. Please, God. 
He goes on. Do you see how the entitlement has left him, how the demanding, it's all gone. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, just once more to be about your good purpose. And he engages in his purpose. How do you regularly practice humble repentance, humble acknowledgement that you, no matter how successful, no matter how intelligent, no matter how entitled, how much you feel like you deserve something, are simply a servant of God? How do you regularly turn from relying on yourself to relying on God throughout the day? You see, Samson's story shows us that. It shows us how God works through imperfect people. You don't have to wait till you're better for God to do great things through you. He can do it now. And, and he shows us two pitfalls that we so easily fall into because we think these dreams are so far beyond us or we, or we have to, so we either have to prove ourselves by working really hard and getting all competitive and becoming an adrenaline junkie to push ourselves through entitlement to do this dream or we, or we disconnect from it and we say that's for somebody else. And he talks to us about the lesson of the longevity of faith, the fact that we have to live from this attitude of repentance. We have to own it. We have to say sorry and, and then actively get back in the game and be a part of the mission right away. All of those are great lessons of faith from Samson. But the greatest lesson from Samson is how he points us to Jesus. I mean, Samson is born out of the promise of an angel, uh, an angel's announcement to a woman who couldn't get pregnant, that he's supposed to be the savior of his people, of his people and be raised by imperfect parents to bring deliverance to God's people. And Jesus is born out of the promise of an angel to a woman who shouldn't have been able to be pregnant, to be the savior of his people, raised by imperfect parents, to be the deliverance, deliverer of God's people. But that's where the similarities begin to stop. See, because unlike Samson, whose deliverance was for one group of people, Jesus came to deliver everybody. And Jesus came to do a much deeper work than Samson's. Because when we look at Samson's deliverance, Samson racked up the violence of a huge body count to deliver a one, one group of people from physical oppression. But he left them enslaved to the cycle of revenge. I mean, that's, that's all throughout the story. When you listen to the story and read both Samson's take and the Philistines' response, they're both always saying, I'm just doing to you what you did to me. I'm giving justice. And it's this cycle of revenge, doing to others what you've done to me kind of justice that we get caught in this just constant bitterness going back and forth. And Jesus, instead of racking up a violent body count, he absorbed in himself the violence of all of our sin, not only to set us free physically and economically, but so that he could break the oppression at its very core. He ends the cycle of violence by interrupting the cycle of revenge. Instead of taking revenge, he offers extravagant love, undeserved love and forgiveness and kindness. And thereby he frees our hearts to do the same. Isn't it true when we're hurt, when we're wounded, we want justice and we want that cycle of revenge? And Jesus is the only one who can interrupt that for us. He's the only one who can break that and change our hearts so that we can truly be free to believe in this dream that is way beyond us, that we don't feel capable of being a part of, and yet we can still be part of it because we're free, because we're loved, because we're blessed, 
And we know that our only role in life is now to be a blessing to others. Jesus does it so much better. Would you just close your eyes now and just let the Holy Spirit come to you as you uh, just focus for a minute. Ask him, how do you want me to respond right now? Holy Spirit, just come. Help us respond, Lord. For the areas we need to repent, it's not just saying sorry, Lord, but it's also re-engaging your mission, your good plan, your good purpose for us. It's much more active than just saying sorry. Lord, I, I pray that you'd come to everyone here right now who's been struggling with this sense of entitlement. There's this tiredness of just saying, I, I, I deserve this. I paid my dues. I, I don't deserve to deal with what I'm dealing with right now. I've already been through this. Lord, I pray that you'd come into that place and you'd bring a peace, that you'd bring a freedom to be in that place and to be your blessing, to be your good, even if it's a difficult place to be. Holy Spirit, come and just speak to to each one's heart about how you are with them right now. And Lord, I pray specifically for the people who are, are disillusioned, feeling like the dream for the business or the dream for the family or the dream for career or the, the dream for marriage or even the dream just to make a difference for you just seems so far off. And there's discouragement, Lord. I pray that you'd come into that place right now with your love and your presence. Help us to see your promise for us. And Lord, instead of like Samson, achieving part of the purpose, but leaving so many relationships bankrupt, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to engage in a way that brings richness to our relationships. Come, Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to stay engaged with God wherever you're at. And if that means that you stand up and decide to sing, or if that means you stay seated and just want to ponder the challenge, the invitation he's bringing to you, then just engage however you want right now as we continue worship. As we're singing that song, I just feel like the Holy Spirit wants to um, touch some of you in some specific ways today. I feel like there's at least someone here who just that I deserve this uh, really speaks to and you just felt just this, it's almost like this tension in your chest where you just been pushing because I deserve this. I need this. And there's just this drive. And you just, you don't know how to let go of that. And God wants to begin to touch you today and, and break that and allow you to rest. Allow you to rest in his presence. I think there's somebody here today, maybe more than one person, who just, you can relate to Samson's story. You can go, man, I have screwed up in relationships like him so stinking much. And you're really having a hard time believing your God, your God's good purpose for you. And God wants to touch you today. And God wants to come to you and say, I've got that purpose for you. And there's some of you here today that you just feel really disconnected from God. You just, you just, uh, we talk about connecting with God. He just seems so distant. 
And I just, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to begin to break through that. I'm not saying it's all going to happen this morning, but I think he wants to begin to break through that where you begin to sense his presence. So if, if any one of those three is you, would you just now, as we continue to worship, just raise your hand. And uh, if you're standing nearby somebody who's raising their hand, you, you can't pray a lot while we're singing because it's so loud. But just would you put lay hand on, just just ask for the Holy Spirit to come and continue to minister to them. Let them sense God's presence. You just pray for one another as we continue to worship. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.